0: Three readings today, uh, some people at the sermon discussion group thought that they, they were a bit negative and depressing, which often happens in the lectionary. But what I want to preach about is a wisdom. How, how have Christian people understood wisdom? How, what, where did we get our understanding from? How do people think about it uh, Today. What kind of interior self-regulation do we need in order to have the practical wisdom that is necessary in order to live a life at least with some degree of serenity and increase our own wisdom? And finally, how do we understand the wisdom that we believe Jesus expressed in his earthly ministry and invited us to participate in, and particularly today in this gospel, Jesus is speaking about suffering and whether suffering has anything to do with wisdom that ultimately attaches to that as we experience it. What might that mean? In biblical terms, wisdom from the beginning has been used to understand uh, the way in which people Uh, conduct themselves in in a moral or ethical fashion. We believe also, Christian people, that in Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, we see the total and adequate expression of the wisdom of God and who in his incarnation brought that wisdom to dwell among us, as it says in the prologue to John's Gospel. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Logos in Greek Uh, Christian people when they think about where their morals and ethics came from also think about the Greeks and one of the things we got from the Greeks were the cardinal virtues cardinal comes from a Latin word cardo which means hinge so these virtues are the virtues that all conduct hinges upon in some way So the cardinal virtue of prudence uh, involves the cultivation of a certain wisdom and perhaps is the most important of the cardinal virtues because it governs all the others. How we understand the practice of the virtues, the accumulated learning as we respond to the experiences and the adversities in our life. And today in Proverbs we have wisdom personified as a woman, woman wisdom in the Hebrew Bible. And Proverbs is the oldest book in a series, in a section in the Old Testament called the Wisdom Literature. Uh, Jewish people order the Hebrew Bible differently than we do. So we call Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job and the song, some of these, uh, as, as a section, we call it the wisdom literature. So this is the oldest of the books of the wisdom literature. And if you listen to Sports Talk Radio, they would say this represents the old school. Old school wisdom and how we understand it. So one of the main things, about, I love the line, how long will the simple enjoy being simple? In your, in your worst moods, that's sort of where you can get yourself, right? How can that happen? How can people be like that? But the book of Proverbs in this section has to do, uh, actually Proverbs, if you do this, this is what will happen. And what's attached to that is that the difficulties in which we find ourselves are of our own making. Do you believe that? The difficulties in which we find ourselves uh, are of our own making. And I think that that's pretty much true, you know. Now here's the thing. Somewhat later than the writing of the book of Proverbs, we have the book of Job. And Job is afflicted by God because in a capricious way he accepted the suggestion of the Satan, more to say about that in the gospel, and decided to take a righteous man and afflict him with enormous suffering. So it raises all kinds of questions. One about the capriciousness of God, Job does, and other things. But the point that I want to make in this sermon is sometimes stuff happens to us that is not of our own making. So we have to have a conversation about that, certainly internally and with one another. And in our public life, and in the society that we would like to see, I hope that all of you as Christian people want a society where it's easier for people to be good, where we look out for people that are on the margins, where people are listened to and taken seriously. So sometimes we have to think about how we cope with the things that happen that aren't of our own making. Now you and I, if we do the internal work, we're able probably to deal better with those things than if we just uh, view them as some great assault. Have you ever met somebody who believes that all of their misfortune is because the whole of society is organized in such a way as to do them hurt? One continuous tale of woe And this is where Proverbs comes in because a lot of that, you know, we're part of this in some ways. I've always believed that people can get addicted to feeling bad, if that's what they're used to. People can get addicted to being depressed, if that's what they're used to. So in some way, this is an, a, an admonition, a suggestion to get out of that internal self condi- that condition, self-centered fear, which is a, the source of most things and difficulties that we experience. But when we think about the idea of wisdom, in the ancient Near East, where they wrote proverbs, they began to to think about other things. If you do this, this will happen. But they also attach the word wisdom to things like technical skill, the art of government, simple cleverness, the practical skill of coping with life, which I just spoke have spoken of, and the perser- pursuit of a lifestyle of proper ethical conduct. Now I happen to believe, You know, I have a perhaps too sunny view of human nature. In the Episcopal Church, or at least this Episcopal Church, you're not going to hear a lot about our personal sinfulness and the total depravity of man, and that uh, even though we've been saved by our belief in the risen Christ and his cross that uh, we need to walk on eggs for the rest of our life in case we commit some difficulty that's going to throw us back into a very serious situation. As the priest I began my ministry with many years ago said, there'll be trouble and plenty of it. And yet, we must look around. And say to ourselves, well, there's a lot of stuff that's been going on since the Book of Proverbs, and it's continued about human behavior. Think about the public discourse now. We've got political candidates who stand up and talk and and talk to, about people in the most insulting, personal way, and believe that they can. That's okay. It's a disgrace. As Clint Fowler used to say, a scorn, a hissing, and a reproach in the tents of Israel. So we need to think about the starting place of how we use our practical wisdom. And we go now to the letter of James, who's talking about another thing. Uh, The letter of James was not addressed to one particular group of Christians It was a general letter, or more like an exhortation. It may, in fact, even have been a sermon. And it was speaking about how people need to, um, uh, how they need to comport themselves in the community life. And today, his focus is on the bridling of the tongue. The bridling... Perish life in 68 A.D. <coughs> People were not bridling their tongue. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Now, when I was in seminary many years ago, all of us at Neshota House then had to take a class when we were first-year students, and it was called by the 25-cent term, ascetical theology, which in fact was how to say your prayers 1A. And the then dean taught the class, and we were taught all of the forms of or systems of praying, you know, the Ignatian method, the Sulpician method, you know, the Salesian method, how to meditate, you know, what, how you do all of these kinds of things. And Dean Parsons used to talk about Something that he referred to as custody. It's an old Catholic spiritual term. Custody of the eyes. And today, custody of the tongue. In other words, how you and I are able to, um, in some way, regulate. Uh, the the self-regulation of instinctual desires. And one of them is uh, loving to gossip. I don't know about you, but I make solemn oaths to myself about never gossiping, and then lo and behold, here I am again descending into the pit of gossip. Gossip. The thing that has always surprised me is that when uh, somebody will come and tell you that so-and-so said to me that so-and-so did this or said this and so on, and they believe them. They believe it. That's the first instance. Oh, really? God, I didn't know she did that or he did that. They believe it. Just like it happened, right? Well, sometimes it didn't happen. And sometimes it's a a figment of the imagination or wishful thinking or whatever it might be. And James says, you know, the same tongue that blesses curses. And in this we need to exercise some form of custody. And that's important for all groups and institutions. You know, one thing we've had to learn in the church in the last uh, 30 30 years or so in the life of the church has taught us, if we pay attention, uh, that we need to distinguish between the keeping of confidences and the keeping of secrets. They're different. They're not the same. And all of us are called to keep confidences, but we're not called to keep secrets, that are not healthy. It's no good. It doesn't work. And the the history of the Christian church in all its forms is replete with examples of why that's not good. And we have lots of work to do. And part of it has to do with uh, custody of the tongue. Today, in the gospel, we have Mark's version of Peter's affirmation that Jesus is the Messiah who do you say that I am you are the Messiah and then Jesus begins to tell the disciples and the crowd that's there that the Messiah, the son of man he doesn't use the word uh, Messiah son of man can mean many things and in this case it may have meant him the Son of Man, I'm a Son of Man, right? Must undergo many things and suffer. And Peter says, God forbid! No! And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. You have your mind on earthly things and not divine things one of the things that would what was probably the most incomprehensible to the early christians and the jews who believed in jesus as the messiah and we call was that the messiah was going to suffer and to die it's an incomprehensibility because they thought that the Messiah was going to manifest two things that were important. He was going to be a, the, the, the return of the great days of Israel, like King David and King Solomon. Those were the great days, the Halcyon days, and he was going to be this kingly presence that was going to once again renew Israel. And also the Messiah was going to be a priestly Messiah. He was going to feed the people. He was going to bless the people. He was going to be faithful to the people. And faithful to God's ordinances in his own conduct. And these things came together. So Peter uh, is just not, not in for this. In the Bible, Satan does not mean the devil. It has been used as a synonym for the devil by many, but it means, in the original languages, the advocate. It's the Satan who says to God, here's a righteous man on earth, afflict him. Right? He's the advocate for this capricious behavior. Now, it's another matter, another sermon about why in the world did God cave and do it. But, in this case, Jesus is saying, get behind me. You know, if you begin to understand what your vocation is, and I happen to believe that Jesus... Uh, came to understand the depth of his vocation and what he was supposed to do and how he understood his messiahship by virtue of his vocation. And like all human beings, he went through a process that culminated in his baptism by John in the River Jordan and his decision now to do what he did. So he himself saw what his vocation was and believed himself to be the Messiah. A lot of biblical scholars don't believe that, but I do. I think that's clear from the biblical text. It's kind of conservative, but there it is. And the fact of the matter is that Jesus may have had, when somebody pushed back, God forbid, I don't want you to do that, he began to think think about the fearful part if you understand your vocation and there's going to be some adversity and difficulty and suffering, if you're reminded of that possibility, even when somebody says, oh no, don't do that, you get upset because it allows that self-centered fear to rise to the surface. And he begins to think about it. So he pushes Peter to the side. We will have, throughout the Gospel witness, continuous examples of Peter's impulsiveness. Uh, nowadays they'd say low impulse control, right? Peter had low impulse control. And so he's saying to him, get behind me. Now, what do we draw from this? Or one thing we might is that it uh, permits us to think about our own suffering. All of the great writers uh, on the spiritual life in the first centuries of Christianity advised in the main against seeking out suffering to be faithful. There are many who didn't pay attention to that and inflicted on themselves hair-raising suffering. But most of, of the people who were sensible said, this is not a wise path because it's going to come your way anyway. So the question that we have is, how now are we going to be able to internally do the work necessary to see if these, this has anything to teach us. Somebody I talk about all the time uh, is uh, Edwin Friedman, who was a rabbi and who was a licensed marriage and family therapist for 35 years or more before he died. And he said, you know, the thing that I've learned is uh, people have come to me, couples have come to me, they've come to me and talked to me, and they have rehearsed in front of me that things they have been through that would make your hair stand on end. And I used to be very interested in all of this. And he said, I I really just simply don't care about it anymore. I don't want to hear a long rehearsal of what it is that you've been through. What I want to know from you is, why are you still here? Why are you still standing? How have you survived? How How have you got through this? And if you have... Because here you are, maybe in not pristine condition. What have you learned and what could you tell somebody else about it? What wisdom have you learned about uh, the redemptive nature of your suffering? I hesitate to use that because all of us know of circumstances where suffering is not redemptive. But it's a remarkable thing to listen to the stories of people who have found that to be so and have been transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love. It's a wonderful thing to see. And it's strengthening in terms of our internal emotional, spiritual, and mental states. So this week, think about the practical wisdom that you have to impart to others. I say that to you all the time. Because there's no one here who doesn't have some that they can share with somebody and see how you might commend it to others. Uh, Work on custody, and particularly the custody of the tongue and how you understand that. Many years ago, I had been a a priest-associate of a religious community of men in the Episcopal Anglican Church called the Society of St. John the Evangelist. It was the oldest monastic community of men uh, after the Reformation, when we started the religious life up again in the Anglican Church. It was founded in 1861. And they're located in this country uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Their monastery is right next to the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. And Father David Clayton, who brought me into the SSJE said one time, we were, some of us were having this conversation with him about gossip and about lack of custody of the tongue. And he said, if you're, if you're standing around and somebody starts gossiping or talking about somebody behind their back, walk away. Walk away. And I must confess to you that I have not been consistent in that practice. And in fact have joined in sometimes with relish, <laughs> right? But we hear from the epistle of James that we need to have custody over the tongue. And finally, uh, see if uh, your life experience, both the good and the bad things, are going to help you um, impart uh, the practical wisdom that you possess uh, on the basis of not of giving people advice about how to live their lives, but suggesting to them what they might want to think about uh, moving forward and what you've learned by that. Amen.